Welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Artists. Also sponsored by Zapplication. I'm Will Armstrong, and I'm a mixed media artist. I'm Douglas Sigworth, glassblower. Join our conversations with professional working artists. Let's jump right in here. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I have not had quite such a response from uh, almost any show as, as we did with uh, Matthew Nafsker. Seems like a like a friend to most everybody. So yeah, that was a welcome addition to the show. Sure was. Great reaction. Great responses. For sure. How are you doing? The listening audience will be happy to know that I showered for this recording of the podcast. <laughs> this is not Aldous Huxley. We do not have smellovision just yet. So <laughs> no one was particularly bothered except for maybe Renee. And myself. There's something funky down on the lower left side of my body. That leg is starting to reek. I can't wait to get Oof. this cast off in a couple days. All right. Couple days. That's what we're looking at. Is that uh, you go cast right to boot and back to work? Is that um, is that how it's going to work? I'm not falling for that trick again. I did that last time. I thought I got in the boot and I could just start making work again. The real work, the hard stuff, the physically hard stuff is about to happen once I get in the boot, because once I put my foot down, it's a long period of rehab. So we're okay. going to give myself time and just see what I'm actually dealing with before we make too many plans to hop back in the studio right away. Yeah. You posted a picture of your your foot and all the screws and everything pulling together. And I think I said, that if, my, if I fixed the deck that way, then my wife would quietly call the contractor. It's like, yeah, the, this screw goes here, right? Kind of up at a 45 oh. degree angle. And maybe I'll put this one in this way. And I mean, it, yeah, it's when you crazy. see that stuff, you realize like exactly how kind of medieval doctors can be at times. And it's like, well, that just looks like a deck screw, you know, it just looks like a four inch deck screw. I, you know, I started before this next procedure, the one I just am currently dealing with, I started asking questions like what a normal foot is and what this looks like and that. And he looked at me, he goes, there is no such thing as normal. We're just trying to put a couple of things in a certain place and see what happens. So that does not give you too much confidence when you know it's like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. And you just kind of work with it, you know? Yeah. What's, <laughs> what I find interesting about this this whole procedure is the fact that you and I don't actually have to record. We can just replay what, what we talked about That's last right. Year. Just It's just a, just a rehash. This is actually just some of the cutting room floor clips from last time. And uh, we're just re-airing it every Douglas ran me through AI <laughs> and... Uh, Man, I I didn't realize what an a-hole I was until you actually pushed me through uh, AI. Um, <laughs> no. All right. Hey, um, we've got Florida coming up. I'm taking a little bit of a break. I'm, I'm driving down to Coconut Grove for the first time since 2015. I have not given that show another try. So You and um, so many other people. It seems like there's like two waves that happen for Florida. It's like either there's the group that hits it right after the new year. And then about mid-February is that second big push. By second right. week of February, with all the shows going on between Miami and Jupiter and uh, Naples area, if anyone's going to do Florida, they're coming by mid-February. Here's an interesting thing. Speaking of Naples, um, Sue Brown Gordon took over Naples National. She's right. run some great shows up in the Northeast. And yeah, it's nice to have kind of one of our own. She's a She's a jeweler and the wife of a well-respected painter here, David Gordon. So... Cool. Interesting to have her in charge. I, I texted her, said something like, taking one for the team. <laughs> you know, but I, I believe in it. You know, you get one of us kind of taking over a show, and she's already had uh, quite a bit of experience in, in, mm -hmm. in running shows. So 
it'll be interesting to see what her experience is with a with a city like Naples that that seems to sometimes fight uh, the art shows and 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 how True. things are run and and set up. So I hope that runs well and. Thank you, Sue, for taking one for the team and, and looking yeah. forward to hearing how things go. Great. Yeah. So how about you? Are you all set and ready to go to Florida? You know, I'm getting ready. I feel a little bit of comfort with the fact that I'm renting a, a van. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm finally getting rid of my truck. I've got it sitting out front, but uh, it it needs like three or $4,000 in order to make a decent profit off of it or at least kind of recoup some of the money and get so okay so is it a lawn sculpture now <laughs> i mean it's a studio sculpture and i don't think anybody in my complex uh listens to this but i, I definitely am clogging up a, a nice big fat parking space out front downtown santa fe but um uh -huh. you know well, consider it a storage unit <laughs> yeah it's, it's another one of those you know beg forgiveness instead of asking permission kind of things because i think they'd yeah. say no but whatever that's yeah. where it, that's where it sits well i'm seeing all of our friends you included all of the great work that you've been getting ready for florida and i know i said in the last episode i don't feel any fomo but i actually am starting to feel like i'm missing out on all the fun that's about to happen here in miami oh it's just so much fun douglas why are you missing out on all the fun all the good times <laughs> maybe you should call me on the road and let me know just how how your never ending drive is going and then i'll be like yeah have your fun i'll stay home thanks <laughs> do you have any strategies actually when you guys get out there on the road i know it's always two of you but do you have any <laughs> ways to mentally wrap your your head around a long road trip like like these these mm. thousand mile plus, you know, everybody talks about the cannibal run from yeah. Portland to St. Louis in two and a half days. But besides just hiring a guy, which I, <laughs> I, I had a guy and he fell through. So I know I'm doing it myself. Okay. But do you have any tips? Like, how do you guys handle it? Uh, well, back when I was doing the solo drives when our kids were home and younger and I, I was off doing the road by myself. Whatever I could stream on my phone, I'd have to switch from music to books to podcasts to calling people who, even if I didn't have to say a word, I come from a family of talkers. So okay. I just put the ear up to the phone and let them tell me what's going on and anything to keep the eyes awake as I'm as I'm going on the road. Sure. How about you? Uh, like when I'm traveling with my wife, we do this. She picks an album. I pick a podcast. She picks a mm. podcast, I pick an album, and then all of a sudden that's four hours. Uh, nice. Too. Plus like kind of breaking and talking about it, but trying mm -hmm. to do the same thing solo. I've got 30 hours to drive and I'm going to mm. do- That is insane. Eh, you know, I mean, it's just what we do, but I'm going to do 12, mm -hmm. at, like the first day, try to be fresh, mm -hmm. hit early. Well, my long days were always the second day. I could never put in super long on the- first day. I don't know what it is. I, I can't always get out the door first thing in the morning on the first day. I don't know if you're all ready to go, but... Yeah, I'm going to try that. I, I'm a I'm a get on the road by like 6 a.m. kind of guy. So I put in mm -hmm. that, that first day is like, okay, let's do all the heavy lifting kind mm -hmm. of thing. I, I hate packing and leaving on the same day. I try to be, yeah. you know, have it all ready, but... Um, totally. I don't know. It's it's it is what it is, but I've got a, a rental van and there there is a comfort in that. Yeah, you, you won't end up on the on the side of the road like Christopher Jeffries talks about in, in this episode. He says his first time making that cross country tour from Laguna Beach in California through Santa Fe all the way to Coconut Grove the first time. 
He was pulling a trailer and that thing ran out of gas. There was no gas stations along the whole oh, Arizona yeah. line. So yeah, <laughs> you they, know that one. <laughs> absolutely. I've done that um, doing the Minnesota to uh, Santa Fe thing. And, you know, that that first gas station, you're like, oh, wow, how kind of them to charge six and a half dollars for uh, for a gallon of gas. But they've got oh, you because it's another, you know, it's the only thing going and they can they can charge whatever they want. And you're glad to At see them. You know, yeah, totally filling that tank with your fingers up, just kind of just giving them the, you know, letting them know, letting them know you. Yeah, I don't like you. Here's my middle finger. Anyway, <laughs> hey, uh, you you talk about uh, Jeffries, but but how about our friend Reiko? She was headed down mm. to Florida and and going from Des Moines all the way to Florida and had to ditch mm-hmm. the van in what was it, St. Louis? So St. Uh, Louis, yeah, just yeah. you know, got a rental and kept on going. I yeah. mean, good for her to. Just keep on moving. I mean, sometimes you just <laughs> right. want to turn around, go home and say, ah, fuck it. You well, know? you don't have any, I mean, the, these first kind of shows of the year. Rent's due. You've, you've got a, yeah, the rent is due and, <laughs> and you've already paid rent on all of your booths and yeah. everything going for the next mm-hmm. six months. You've already put the rent out. So yeah. uh, everybody's broke this time of year and has a lot riding on it. Mm. So I wanted to bring something up and see what you had to say about this. Thinking back on a number of our past talks. This was a Mm -hmm. reaction that I had gotten, talks where people are talking about they want their art to do like good for the world, something that's kind of of a humanitarian effort kind of thing. Okay. And the reaction was, well, if you're truly doing humanitarian work, you should give all the proceeds to the artwork you're making for this humanitarian effort towards that and not actually profit from it. Bullshit. Well, that kind of made me stop (laughs) and think like- That's a tough thing to say to an artist who's trying to make a living and is trying to connect to their voice in the work. And if they want to do something for the world through their artistic talent, I mean, should they just not even do it because somebody says it's not pure enough for them? I mean, that's crazy for me. That sounds like that person's probably like 20. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, come on. Uh, If you can make a living and and also uh, make a a statement about the world and and get that out there, and maybe you're even being a little subversive and and Mm. selling things to people that they don't know are are statements uh, that they were to you, because I think that the work is, you know, it, it, it can be open to an interpretation. And I think if you're out there making a living and making a statement, more power to you. I'll make a, uh, the occasional statement, but really I consider my work to be more of storytelling. But yeah. I think it is tricky to make a living and make a statement, but mm-hmm. god damn, who's going to belittle somebody for making a living? Um, There's that. And then it's also like we do change the world through the message. I mean, through changing people's minds. It's not just related to commerce. You know what I'm saying? Right. That it's right. that there's another element to what we do as artists that isn't so um self-serving, I guess. It's it's like trying to help. Right. Yeah, I don't I think that that is um pretty naive uh to to consider that unfortunately. I, I don't mean to Yeah, fuck it. Yeah, I do. I do mean to piss somebody <laughs> off. It's what well, how how precious. Uh <laughs> So, bless, anyway. I think that's a bless your heart moment, right? Yeah, uh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> uh, bless your heart. Well, all right. Uh, moving on. What do we? What else we got on the list? Do you got anything else to say about that? Because no. I think um, 
I think uh, that's just to put a pin in it. <laughs> ink stamp, just bullshit on top of that and, and okay. move on down the move, line. Move it on. The other thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, Matthew brought up in the last episode about being diagnosed as classically ADHD. Yes. And I hear so many people use that like, oh, I'm so ADHD. It's kind of like kind of a, a, a throwaway thing, but just because right. maybe they have anxiety or their attention to detail. But the whole idea of that coming into focus for him and how that related to his art and learning about those like those self-imposed mechanisms that have helped him and that awareness, I found that really mm -hmm. interesting that we never got to talk about after, you know, we finished our conversation with him last time. Yeah, that one uh, stuck out to me as well. And, you know, I have known him for a very long time and that really does kind of explain a lot. Like he does mm -hmm. seem to be more like at peace with the world and but like being able to focus on your work and and get through certain things so but also the idea of being like stubborn i i know a thing or two about adhd and i have plenty of people in my world that are and i know them and love them and i really know that it is hard to break through that mental barrier to do something that you're just not okay with doing and i think that being an independent artist is kind of like the perfect career for that type of person mm. because you can create your own rules, do what you want to do, make what you want to make, craft the life you want to craft, no matter what anybody else thinks or what they would say is supposed to be, you know? Right. Right. That's a great point. That's a great point. Uh, hey, so next up here on our list, do you have that point that you had written here about what Stephen posted on, on the forum? You know, uh, this is interesting. If you're on the NAIA Facebook group, uh, Stephen King posted a, a pretty interesting link uh, it, about money laundering. And thanks a lot, uh, government. I, uh, here goes my, um, my retirement plan. Okay. No, my retirement plan. I, I just I've always thought that like I we watch Breaking Bad and uh, oh, yeah, I've yeah. watched Ozark. Like, I, God, I feel like I, I ought to be able to call up uh, Walt and let him know we could launder money so much more easily. I'm like, yeah, here are these $60,000 paintings. It's just such a, a great factory. You could just <laughs> take in that money and, and turn it right back around to the drug dealer. Don't do that. That's a joke. Well, but, I think um, the bigger point that Stephen was making instead of the loophole, it's the there's a new filing that we have to do as small businesses as either LLCs or whatever. I don't know exactly. I read the article, but this is something I'm turning over to my accountant. So everybody do this. But if there's a new filing you need to do to ensure that you aren't money laundering. So that's all that's we know. Right. So <laughs> we're all in the that's taxes right. mode right now. So Look at that article for yourself, ask your accountant about it, and just make sure that this new thing doesn't get you, doesn't bite you, <laughs> you in know, the ass. That's right. Here's another thing to bite you in the ass. Um, I did just forward that article to my to my accountant and be like, Perfect. hey, make sure I'm covered. Um, but I did feel like I handled that similarly to the way I do when I have uh, the same show as you. And I'm <laughs> like... Hey, where where do I go? Uh, what do I do here now? Yeah. What's the location? Drop a pen. I mean, Drop. like, yeah, let the guy who does it for a living, the smart guy, let them handle it. I just show up and sell. Well, it's good to know this one up front because a lot of artists have been learning the hard way about when California changed one of their franchise board tax rules 
And artists have been getting, over the last couple of years, have been getting bills of late payments and all this stuff, thinking they're following the rules, but the rules changed. So kind of in line with the whole California thing, make sure you're doing this one right. Yeah, I'm going to text my bookkeeper here real quick because uh, I forgot about that. He's doing it right Um, now, people. Right now. I am. I really am. Because I will forget. (laughs) I'm in the middle of... Uh, of of like production mode and and panic mode and and I can't get the guy to do the thing that you can't do that that's my big advice that's our um, motto that should be our motto yeah get the person to do the thing <laughs> isn't guy uh, sexually ambiguous these days it could be but I don't think whatever <laughs> I call my daughters guys isn't that that like hey guys because they if, they hated being called girls uh, um. They're like, girls, no. it's time for dinner. Mm-hmm. They want to be, they're like, can you just, so I've been yelling humans and, and uh, guys, and I don't know. That's why. Get I've, the fuck in here, whatever. everyone. <laughs> hey, calm down. Jeez, this language. <laughs> All right, everyone. All right. Well, we have jabbered on long enough. It's time to give an intro to our guest. Our guest is Christopher Jeffries this week on the podcast. Um, another glass artist like myself. Oh my God. You're going to nerd out on glass for the next hour? Well, <laughs> mm, maybe a little. No. All right. First of all, I don't know if you knew this, but he worked for Chihuly. Very cool. Yeah. When I'm at a show, just about every other person walks in my booth and says, did you work for Chihuly? Do you know Chihuly? Well, he can actually say, yeah, I, I worked for Chihuly. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So cool stories about that and about his his time in the working in the Czech Republic and sleeping on the floor of a studio just to immerse himself. It's more interesting when he says it. Let's it's, cut to the interview. We just yeah. What he said. <laughs> there we right. go. So here is Christopher Jeffries coming up. This episode of the Independent Artist Podcast is brought to you by Zap the digital application service where artists and art festivals connect. So, Will, it's that time of year again when we all need to start getting stuff ready for taxes. Uh, Thanks for that, Douglas. I appreciate that. We all do, quite literally. I did get an email recently from Zap. Uh, They were talking about uh, doing line items and keeping everything together in one place. Yeah, that's right. I tried it out for myself. So when I was logged into Zap, I went to my profile And one of the options further down the page is to download your transaction history. Amazing. That's after you've proven to them that you're not a robot by uh, correctly (laughs) identify the tractor before you play that lovely game. So once you've identified that you're an actual human, it's super easy just to select your date range and then it will create a report of all your purchases so you can hand off those booth fees and application fees directly to your accountant. Hey, my friend, how's everything going with you? Everything's good. How are you feeling? How's the leg doing? The leg is good. It's still attached. (laughs) That's important. I've still got it. (laughs) I've thought about giving up on it, but you know, what are you going to do? You got to work through it, I guess. Uh, You're doing everything you can do. I am. Yeah. And you know, it's going pretty good. It's hard. I mean, we know as glassblowers so much about what we do is so physical. We see the world through that physical lens. Aside from our artwork, I think a lot of glassblowers tend to be real active people. I mean, I see you doing stuff on the ocean all the time and fishing and all that kind of stuff and doing fun stuff. Yeah, Yeah, it requires a lot of us. Physically, just even the show aspect, I mean, it probably even beats me up more than than being in the shop. So last time I saw you was in in La Quinta at a show. Have you had anything since? Are you getting ready for Florida? Where are you at with your show season? The first show of the year was in Naples, the New Year's show. So oh, cool. uh, yeah, 
went out there and did that, but we got a lot of rain. First time I've seen that show get cut short on Saturday and then Sunday we saw some rain. It all ended up turning out okay, but it was it was a pretty tough show. I mean, it was just downpouring. But that's Florida mm. for you, you oh, know? It's, totally. The weather's all over the place. It changes by the minute. So uh, so I did that show. And then this weekend, I'm doing a show with a gallery in Palm Beach Gardens. Nice. I'll have, I'll have free walls that I'll show for that. Nice. Yeah, they'll set up the, the artwork and run the show. And kind of a mix of uh, some sculptors. Mark Lewanski is showing in that show with oh, the gallery cool. that I'm showing with. Nice. And then a jeweler, Ted Gall, Gary Trasick, Leanne Luster, and yeah. uh, Alexis Silk. Yes. She does the kind of like the torsos and yeah, stuff. Yeah, the glass torsos that are like hanging from hooks. Yeah. So Alexis is in our gallery as well. So it's it's a really cool group of artists. And most of them are out there kind of representing themselves through the gallery, helping the gallery owner kind of run the show. Cool. So me being here in California and as I do three or four shows over the season in Florida, it was just kind of a lot of back and forth. So try to stay here with the family when I, when I have the opportunity, they're nice Definitely. enough to help me kind of run the show and, and be there and help represent me. So it's cool. called art Palm beach. Oh, cool. Nice. So when did you get out onto the outdoor festival scene? Maybe 2004 or five, right around then I kind of just started locally here in Laguna beach. They have, the Sawdust Festival, which is all of July and August. Gotcha. That's an outdoor show that 60 days you'll build kind of a booth where you you frame it, drywall it, has lights. Okay. It's kind of like a little mini gallery, but it's it's open air. So okay. um, you'll have a roof over yourself and, and then it's permanent. It's there for 60 days from 10 in the morning till 10 at night, seven days a week. So that sounds like a um, marathon. My gosh, that's a marathon. And then they have a glass blowing little demo booth there that's set up where you can work out of the furnace and, and sell stuff right off the pipe and do demos. And then there's maybe eight or nine, 10 glass blowers in there. And they all kind of just rotate doing demos. Okay. It's, it's a long 60 days. It's not just glass though. It's all mediums. Yeah. Yeah. All medium. Yeah. So you'll have, you know, painters, you'll have photographers and, uh, jewelers, sculptors, just kind of a mix of artists, ceramicists in there. And the only prerequisite for it is you have to live in Laguna Beach. And I think I've lived in town for like a minimum of, I want to say it's three years prior to doing the show. So they like really kind of tries to push the local artists okay. in the area yeah. for that show. Well, I remember when I first started, you, you know, we started crossing paths out on the road. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, this guy is really going big out here. You know, it's like a lot of artists on the scene maybe create a piece that you can hold in your hands. You were doing installations and you were presenting kind of on a different scale than maybe most people around you. You know, I kind of evolved and morphed over the period of, of years. When I started doing more shows back East, really that was the the goal and the focus was to to be able to show larger scale work and mm -hmm. kind of focus on that. It, it's definitely a kind of a different animal because, you know, you're, you're going for a big fish. You got to be really patient and, and wait quite a while until you find something that, that works, you know, with some of the shows, just it's, it's not a volume thing. It's more quality versus quantity in terms of the people that come to the show, just looking for a few people to have great conversations with and connect with. And 
different than when I first started out doing more pedestal kind of pieces or accessory pieces where you would you'd be busier selling one or two pieces that going in, inside of someone's home instead of a collection. So it's like you're making connections at the show and you're not typically sending people out of your booth with something. You're setting up appointments and visitations, projects that are more complicated than just the let me wrap that up in bubble wrap and hand it to you and off you go. I mean, we're probably one of the few artists that's really just kind of selling a concept. Mm-hmm. We'll have anywhere between one to three pieces in the booth that might be sit on a pedestal, but everything else is custom made for the client and for the space that we're going to install it in. So at the end of the show, or most people are packing up and and kind of like, it was a good show. It was okay. However, it felt energy wise for us, it's kind of just the beginning of, of what we kind of got into there. So we'd stay after the show and Hopefully, if we're lucky enough to have appointments and work with clients, start the design process and get to see the space and whatever design we come up with. And when we get back to Laguna Beach, we drop it into Photoshop and start doing digital renderings and providing color samples. So it it is a a long process from start to finish from the time we meet initially meet the client Mm -hmm. to, to really selling the artwork. When I first came in contact with your work, my first thoughts were, Wow, that's a tough road to hoe. Thinking I knew like what the street could accommodate. But then obviously, yeah. over time of getting to know you and seeing that you have a presence out on the road, that you you are able to make a living and meet the goals that you want to meet, I guess it does change the perception. Maybe sometimes as artists, we have self-limiting beliefs as to what's really out there, you know, who we're really talking to on a on a weekend by weekend basis. It's interesting, you know, how most of us shows that we're doing, we find that there are unique spots that people have second and third homes. And that's kind of our mm-hmm. clientele base. We want people that collect or they get it and understand it and can appreciate it. Yeah. So did you kind of grow into that confidence that those folks were out there or were you already working with that type of a clientele before you were showing on the road like that? What was that process like? Maybe a little bit of both. It was probably a huge leap of faith that I'd be able to make a living selling the work on a larger scale mm-hmm. and kind of testing it here locally, doing like Beverly Hills did the show there. We go up to Washington and maybe do a show there, kind of basically on the West Coast, doing the, mm-hmm. the summer shows in Laguna Beach. But yeah. it was definitely a leap of faith heading to the East Coast to try and open up my eyes to a whole different market and clientele base. Yeah. Extending ourselves that far and trying to figure out how are we going to do it logistically? How are we going to get back East and, and then do these shows and navigate across the U S over the period of the year? Well, you have developed kind of a unique way to maneuver that with like having two different show vehicles and displays and setups. Yeah. So it helps you be able to, maneuver that lifestyle of getting from coast to coast. Can you talk about how that came about? Basically, what we ended up doing is after we were doing a handful of just local shows on the West Coast, I decided I'd invest in another vehicle and get a trailer made that would allow us to fit everything in it. We packed everything up and our first show was like Coconut Grove in Florida and I was heading out of California and I was looking at on my gas meter, how many miles I had 
on our tank, but it was still registering what my truck was driving without pulling the trailer. So by the time I think I got into Arizona, I thought I was, the next gas station was maybe 60 miles. Next thing you know, I'm on the side of the road, like only four hours into the trip, ran out of gas, call it AAA. And then we make it to the next gas station. I ran out of gas twice crossing the country on our first travel from from Laguna to Florida. Pulling a trailer, it just drinks the gas, doesn't it? It just downs it. (laughs) Eight eight miles to the gallon, nine miles to the gallon. And it it was like a 1500 Chevy truck. It wasn't even, it was like a Duramax diesel or anything. So so yeah, there was a little bit of a learning curve there. And uh, I spent everything I had, everything I pretty much had saved on the getting another vehicle and getting the trailer made and then creating the new booth and building it. And um, it was like, we were all in. Okay. And I have two kids at home, my wife and I have two boys. And so we were like, man, this is, this is kind of gutsy. I don't know if it's borderline stupid or, or just a leap of faith because we had no idea what the Florida markets were going to be like or what the shows were going to bring to us. So it was a, yeah. it was a great experience. And and you know, never know unless you try, right? I do feel like as glass artists, I feel like we have a little bit more pressure to get that bottom line to go because it's not just driving off to the show. It's like the costs of running our studios at home are just insane. I mean, yeah. it's just completely insane. And so when you get yourself so leveraged to do the shows and stuff, and then you think to yourself, my furnaces are on at home and I'm out here selling. And if I'm not making money on the road, I'm really losing money back home. It's so true. It's so true. And then we have people in the shop. We're lucky enough to have great help and people that are helping us. And you think about them and the whole picture of the furnace is running while we're gone. And then employees needing work when you get back and trying to keep everybody busy and keep things moving forward in the right direction. And and you're bound to have a a, a mm. show where you get pouring rain and you get rained out or, or you you talk to a, a million people, but you, I might not sell one thing, you know, it's the, the zeros are hard to swallow and yeah. you, you have to think, well, big picture wise, I mean, maybe we'll get a phone call six months from now or three months from now or next year, but it doesn't immediately pay your bills and put money in the bank. And keep that faith going too, because sometimes those, those down shows can, can kind of weigh on us a bit. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and nothing's a guarantee. So we just do what we love and put it out there and hope something sticks. So you, you mentioned something about having glass blowers at home so you have people who work for you in your studio i do and, yeah you know. yeah lucky enough to have a great team of people that have came on with me over the years that went to school at cal state fullerton and we have a glass program here in southern california uh, we have two programs one at cal state san bernardino and one at cal state fullerton that okay. where you can get your mfa in glass and study glass and they're currently building one at uh, ucsd as well so that would be San Diego will have one. And then the junior college Palmar and junior college in San Diego has a program. So we're within maybe a a 60 mile radius, 40 to 60 mile radius. We have all these, these programs and schools here. So I'm close with the instructor at Cal State Fullerton, Hiromi Takizawa. And she helps over the years has helped Mm -hmm. students that would come in and, and study glass that really wanted to continue to pursue glass blowing as a career or get in the shop and see what it would be like to to work in a production environment i feel really lucky she she'll kind of every once in a while there'll be a student that just has the bug like we got it and just loves the shop and wants to be in there and and then we'll bring someone in and and slowly kind of bring them in and 
introduce them to the studio and slowly get them working in the shop with us. So it's it's been really good nice. good opportunity for us. So then working for you, do they then also have the opportunity to use the studio for their, their own learning too? Or do they have other access you, like through the school yeah. or... So some will do some co-teaching through the school and use the school. And then the mm-hmm. employees that work with me, they'll use, they'll rent the shop and have it occasionally, depending on a few of them have, have been starting to do shows. So they'll be able to use the shop to make their work and start kind of developing a body of work. And one of my employees just did a winter show that was at the Sawdust Festival. They also have a winter show. So he had a booth there and Oh, it's been working on getting sure. uh, a body of work together. So it's nice. And they're all kind of diversified doing different things. Some are more sculpture based, some are kind of more driven probably to the production side. So there's kind of a blend of personalities there. And it's great. They all get along really well. For those not in glass, what does that mean when you say the production side? What does that mean? So, so yeah, I would say that I guess the production side being where you're, you're more focused on developing maybe a, a body of work, a collection of work or a style, and you're going to make pieces at a, at a higher rate or volume of pieces that will go out to either galleries or you'll go to shows and sell. So for example, the individual that was working with me that is developing kind of a production line, he, mm-hmm. he has a, a line of vases and work making some vessels that, that are functional and non-functional, but We'll go into the shop and try and make a handful of pieces over the period of of the day. So something that might be more, not easily reproducible, but reproducible within like an essence. Right, right. Yeah. And then I mean, during the winter time, he was making everything from, I think, drinking glasses to ornaments to small stuff that you could sell and produce a lot of over a period of a day versus spending days yeah. on a on a concept so we have another individual in the shop that does more sculptural pieces where there's a lot more cold working involved which is post-production after we're done blowing it they're in the cold shop spending countless hours grinding and polishing lenses into pieces or making mm-hmm. multiple pieces to create a a, a sculptural piece of so maybe spending mm-hmm. 25 or 30 hours on a piece versus making maybe 10 or 15 pieces in a day Early in our career, Renee and I, we we kind of got a wake-up call when we did like the buyer's market of American craft. You know, we'd go and do the wholesale show. Okay. And we were really then exposed for the first time to all these different production, quote-unquote, studios where, you know, they had like a line of tumblers, a line of ornaments, a line of this. And we realized that wasn't for us, that as a two-person operation, we didn't want to hire other people. We wanted to make our own thing and just kind of work as partners. And so we we kind of have crafted our business away from that whole aspect. What you're describing for you almost sounds like what you experienced when you were an apprentice for like Chihuly, right? Is it kind of set up similarly? Yeah, I would. I mean, when, when I had the opportunity to work there up in Seattle with Chihuly, he was it was definitely production oriented, high volume. There would be two teams of uh, six people. So typically we'd have 12 people in the shop working together. We would divide them into two teams of six and then you'd have two to three okay. people on a starting kind of starting the initial shape for the chandelier part, mm-hmm. applying the color, blowing the setup shape like a genie bottle. Mm-hmm. And then we'd pass it off to the second half of the team. The other 
three and three, a finishing bench and kind of a starting bench. And then gathering on that, that start shape that we would create. And then someone would be making the finished piece. And we we're making hundreds of pieces in a matter of a day with the two teams gathering hundreds and hundreds of times during throughout the day. So when we first started working there, I, I remember gathering like with the palm of my hand open sure. and like by the end of the day, the second day, this was, yeah. this all, this was just blistered and filled up with water. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to start to gather yeah. with, with this part of your hand. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't used to gathering. Adjust your grip. Yeah. I wasn't used to gathering that many pieces in a day or, or that kind of volume. It was just really high volume and, and your hands were in the, in and out of the furnace wow. a ton. So it was a great experience in terms of being able to just work with the glass and gather that much in a day, but it it's a totally different animal than like what we're doing in our shop. Yeah, I'm sure like the consistency and stuff too, like how much glass you can gather at a time. And I'm sure it becomes remarkably consistent. And then you're working with 12 people at any given time in a shop and everybody has hot glass on a stick. And you got a lot of different personalities, but it was like, it was a real good group of people there at the time working. And you had so many different personalities and people working together that worked together well. The days flew by. It was, it was a cool environment to work and be in. As you could imagine, after a year of doing it, you, you kind of hit the glass ceiling, so to speak. You really feel like you experienced something special and really cool, but you're, you're not doing a ton outside of that specific job that you're really doing day in and day out on kind of like an assembly line. So Uh wanting to create and develop and grow as an artist, you kind of like, okay, well, what's the next step? And it was an amazing experience, a neat experience, but what would be kind of the next step to allow me to grow and continue as an artist to experience new things? In your own career. In my own career, yeah. To have it be in your own career. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, what you were doing, it's almost like being an athlete and doing drills over and over and over. And, you know, you get technically proficient. And I'm sure the wheels are spinning in your head like, okay, this is what I want to make for myself, but I'm working eight hours a day in this hot shop for somebody else. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, what was it like being in his orbit? I mean, we all hear these stories about Chihuly. Was he present a lot? Did you interact with him at all? What was it like? In all honesty, he was. We we didn't see a ton of him, so it was more the the blowers that were there and the the people that were running the shop were had been there for for some time. But we would occasionally see him at the shop for a kind of a short period of time, or we'd be maybe moving some pieces mm-hmm. that we made from one room to another that he would be signing. Or um, sometimes in the evening, they would have bring someone in that was uh, well-known or famous, whether or not it was a, a musician or a, a successful actor or someone that was well-known. And we were maybe doing a chandelier for them. So they would come in and watch us blow, and then he would be present for that. I see. So like you'd have like celebrity guests who were buying his work? Yeah. So he was kind of give him a tour of the, of the shop and let him kind of see his place and, and kind of the pool where the Persians are and the well, us blowing glass uh, in the shop and kind of basically giving them a tour. So occasionally we would see him at that time, but we didn't see a ton of him. He was kind of definitely behind the okay. scenes. This was at the boathouse? At the boathouse, yeah. Okay. For people who don't know Chihuly, that's his 
that's his big studio. I mean, that's where his operation is. And it's in Tacoma, am I right? No, it's in, it's in Seattle. Seattle. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. Tacoma. They have the this is where the museum is there, and then the boathouse is in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So that's right on the water on okay. the sound there. That's where the boathouse is located, and then they have another shop that they built there in, in Seattle as well, where they're making some of the production stuff, more of the the Persians, kind of the the nesting bowls and the plates that look like seashells. Some mm-hmm. of that that stuff, and then the museum is in Tacoma. They don't think they do any any his production out of there. Maybe every once in a while they'll come in and utilize it. But does the mystique of like his persona, his ego, his reputation kind of wear off pretty quick once you kind of get to know the person, you know, like like whenever we meet any kind of a celebrity or the, when they walk in our booths and say, oh, do you know Chihuly? You actually can say, yeah, I, I, I know I've worked on his team. So, I mean, what would you say from behind the scenes kind of thing? Say that I really ever got a chance to, to know him. He has a strong presence sure. and he's done a lot of amazing things for glass and, and has allowed glass to kind of be viewed as a, I'd say less as a, as a craft and more as a fine art and his regard, you know, what yeah. he's done for a lot, a lot of the other glass floors, even though he's not in there physically blowing the glass himself, mm-hmm. he's really kind of brought glass to, uh, to another level as an American glass artist is one of the boomers of glass, what he's done. But he, he employed us a lot of people. Employed still does, and, and at that time it was okay. it was a, it's a big operation. There's so many people I think coming and going. It, he's just kind of more or less behind the scenes and not present a ton in terms of the, the hot shot part of things. Okay, gotcha. So what what prepared you, or what led you to the point of walking into the boathouse and being employed for Chihuly? What got you into glass to start with? I went to school at Chico State. They had a glass program there. And is that Northern California? It is. Yeah, it okay. is just kind of east of San Francisco, if you kind of drew a line out that way. But it's up in Northern California, and they had a glass program there. I graduated early from high school, took a, some classes. I grew up in Bakersfield and okay. in San Joaquin Valley. And took a glass blowing class at the local junior college in Bakersfield and fell in love with it. And from that point on, I was like, okay, I, I want to research and find a school that has glass. I want to stay nice. in California so I could have in-state tuition and be in, still in California close to uh, to family. And so I, I went to um, San Jose State had a program and then okay. Chico State had a program and California College of Arts at the time it was called CCAC but the west coast of RISD California College of Arts had a had a program as well so those three programs I knew about and I went and met each one of the professors and kind of met the students and kind of got an idea of how much time do you get here as a glassblower to work in the shop and, and kind of what okay. the professor was like and really connected with Chico love the area ended up going to school there and uh, the professor there really was kind of a nice blend of, of pushing the conceptual side of things and okay. then also pushing us on a uh, on a technical level both kind of a nice blend nice balance yeah yeah so like we couldn't just make goblets or cups all day unless we were going to cut them up and do something with them or we whatever okay. he'd let us make things to improve our skill level but it was all about coming up with an idea concept and and trying to do something else with it for our 
body of work and kind of forced us to photograph our work and document our work. So a lot of great things that I picked up through that program. That's so many other elements to glass blowing that some people take for granted. I mean, I've had experience with programs that are really all about technique and then programs that are maybe yeah. more heavily concept driven. And I feel like the concept driven right. are the really for us as artists, it's a stronger background for me. I mean, for what I want to do and what I want to make, I don't just want to like do the perfect drop foot on a bowl. I want, I want to create something that maybe has an elevated sense of aesthetic or whatever. Right. Yeah. And it has a message or that says something about, about you or what you're inspired by or some, an experience in your life that kind of stemmed a body of work or it's connected yeah. to you. So having it look different than everybody else's. So I think being able to yeah. be unique and create kind of a, a, a look or a, a body of work that looks like your work or different than everybody else's is, is important in the big scheme of things of trying to make a living as an artist. Coming back to, to the Chihuly model, you know, how many of his people who've worked for him just go off and do the faux Chihuly's? to create a career on the right. back of what they learned making stuff for him. That has been a little bit of a, of a, a thing that I've kept in mind with having people in the shop or, or working around us is, you know, when you come up with an idea, you, you, you want to kind of have proprietary ownership over that and not really have somebody else who can see step by step by step how it's done and then do their knock on it, you know? Right, right. Yeah, that's true. It was just, it was a great chapter being there in that point in my career. So the very first day I worked there, I didn't even get to touch the glass. I was basically in the silver suit, loading pieces all day. Putting them away. Yeah. <laughs> and fortunately, I, I got to transition out of that pretty quick. Well, for anyone who doesn't know what you're talking about there, Christopher, you are the guy wearing the hot, it looks like a tinfoil suit. And when these blown pieces are finished and... Chihuly's pieces can be massive. You're the one who has to catch it and hold this thousand degree piece in your arms, carry it and put it in the annealing oven. All That's day. how you paid your dues? That's how you started? That's it. Yeah, they break it <laughs> off. And then we had a, a a torch that had a just like our hot torches, but it had a foot pedal on it. So you'd, yeah. you'd put your foot on the pedal. We'd, we'd fire polish where it broke off. Uh -huh. And then the ovens there were like the size of a, a Cadillac. And so there were these huge ovens because some of the pieces would be six or seven feet long as when they went to pull like the horns or the longer chandelier elements. So you'd have it in your hands. Yeah. Basically crawl inside this oven. It's like a little car, you know, you crawl inside there and, <laughs> yes. and set the piece in there. And, Crematorium. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they chalk up, all right, we got one more mage, you know, and they, we'd, the two teams would kind of keep count on what you're making and you could compare yeah. your team to the other team a little, you know, have that competitive, who's going to make more elements in a day, kind of keep it fun. It was a great experience. And then after working there for, for a year, I was definitely felt like ready for a different experience or to continue to grow. And then that's what my dream was to live and work in Czech Republic for while I was in college. Nice. So the Czechs work real different than the Italian way that we learned at Chico. And you probably learned the same way as like we've learned sitting down on benches, rolling the pipe on the bench, sure. more Italian 
way of working. And then the checks, they'll, they work standing up. So they don't work on benches there. So it's a real different way of approaching the glass. Are the benches taller and they roll the pipe standing up on the, on the arms? So we work on platforms. So elevated wood platform, because a lot of what they do is mold blowing. And the shop that I was working in, they were doing a a mix of mold blowing and free blowing stuff. So we would work on wood platforms and then there would be a kind of like a basin, like a water trough with a yoke off the front of it that would have our blocks on it and they would have all your tools sitting on it. So no one ever sat down. Everybody from your first gather to finishing the piece, you're standing up working off of the yoke. And then the pipes are about half the diameter of our pipe so you can roll them in the in the back of your hand and then the handle on the end of the blow pipe they're wood and they're about twice the size the diameter of our our handles they're larger wood handles okay a real different way of working there which was interesting but was lucky to get a a job opportunity with a glass artist there his name was igor muller okay so igor worked in uh simon pierce he saw a job offering when he was in in Czech Republic, studied glass there, came to U.S., worked for their company, for Simon Pearson, saved a ton of money and moved back and opened up his hot shop in uh, his studio about an hour and a half outside of Prague in a small town called Holice. Nice. So through a friend of a friend, someone told me about him. I emailed him and he said, you can come check out the shop. I had a one-way ticket to check and brought my tools. And I'm just like, I'm going to go over there and hopefully find work and, and just knock on doors. And, it takes a lot of faith. Yeah, it takes some, some faith and stupidity, but it was great. So <laughs> I, uh, I just packed my bags and I think I had not even $1,000 to my name and just flew over there. And fortunately, the money goes a lot further over there when you get outside of Prague. Okay. So you could, you know, beers are a dollar and food's more affordable. But so Igor was nice enough to let me hang out and basically sleep on on his floor at the shop. And I kind of started there from the bottom up as well. And when I showed up, he said it was a, a good time to be there. They have a, some orders and they could use my help. And said he'd, he'd employ me for four weeks. And then four weeks ended up turning into to four months and then turned into eight months. And the next thing you know, I was, I was there a year later, living year. and working there. And that was definitely one of the highlights of my life. The path of working with glass, learning a lot there of different aesthetics, the way they approach the material. How would you describe it as different or or how it influenced you? A little bit of the minimalist, maybe? Yeah, they were a lot of, a lot of some, a lot of optical stuff and Mm -hmm. the minimalist being more, we would occasionally do a melt of that green glass, the kind of Bavarian looking like green glass tinted glass so we do some antique stuff as well but a lot of stuff we were doing was kind of thicker optic stuff and doing a blend of working with forms and molds that they had that was part of their production line and then some free blowing stuff that wasn't mold blown so yeah i was it was amazing living and working there the kids there go to basically high school to learn kind of like a trade school. So they'll go at a young age at 14, 15, 16, start learning about glass blowing, being able to make batch and all the properties of glass, fusing, slumping, blowing, a school just for glass. And um, nice. and so 
the the kids that I was working with when I was over there, they were younger than me, but they had been working for for a handful of years. So mm-hmm. kind of like you going to trade school. Sure. I mean, they're like 15, 16, 17. They're already in kind of like uh, trade school learning. And it was a small studio, which was nice because over in Europe, some of the studios are are larger. But and most of what we made ended up actually coming, oddly enough, back to the U.S. Yes. And some to Holland and different parts of Europe, but all, the bulk was coming to U.S. So okay. I felt lucky because it was small and, and it felt like a family. Mm-hmm. And they uh, were right on all the heat shields. I was the only American living in town. So I was trying to learn how to speak Czech. And yeah. on the heat shields, they write one word in English and then Czech, English, Czech, and then so they were learning English and I was learning Czech and the, all the heat shields were covered with words as we'd sit there and reheat all day. We we would, we'd be drilling each other on words. And I was uh, going to ask, that had to be a, a bit of a challenge, that language barrier, but it sounds like they made it accommodating. Yeah, it was great. And then Igor being that he lived in the uh, U.S., he, he, he spoke English so he could help explain a lot of things oh, as well. And But they really kind of helped push me to to learn how to speak check and you learn like all the colors and then you learn turn you learn all the words in the yeah. hot shop like right off the bat mm-hmm. and and then you, know, you go to the restaurant and you learn chicken beef fish and then you and then you just point at something and you, you missed, slowly you missed the word that would make all the listeners laugh and that was blow whenever whenever glass blowers talk about telling somebody uh-huh. to blow it makes everybody uh giggle like they're in grade school or something <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There we go. You can't forget that word. So yeah, it, it was awesome just being there and, and nice. having the ability to kind of live in a small village and and work over there. And you did some stuff in Italy too, didn't you? So I went to school when I was still in college. I went to school at Lorenzo de Medici, the Art Institute. So when I was there, I was studying mainly um, sculpture. I got to work with marble a little bit and mm-hmm. and do some more figurative stuff, kind of traditional stuff and study a little bit of, of the architecture over there and art history. And no, there was no glass making when I was there living in Florence, but uh, it, it was cool living in, in Florence and being able to study art. So it was, it was fun being over there. That was when I was um, still in Chico. Would you say that that architecture element had influenced you and influenced your style of of installation work? I mean, because it does take a certain eye to be able to take a piece or multiple pieces and visually designing big spaces when it comes to placing glass. I mean, I would definitely say that it, it kind of a little bit of every piece of the of something you, you learn or absorb as you as you travel and mm. places that you go that that you pick up on that it, it all somehow ends up in in there somehow, you know, with whatever you, wherever you end up going with your ideas and, and your concepts as an artist. But Prague is just, it, it's, it's incredible how preserved it is and, mm-hmm. and the architecture they have there. So, cool. but everywhere you go, I think in Europe, there's, you're surrounded by so much history. It's, it's definitely very inspiring. I mean, I do think about like the different kinds of, of titles or, or, or names that kind of describe what we do at least in this country, as glass artists, you know, some glass artists would think of themselves just that, you know, glass artist or a glass blower. I think about like being a designer or craftsperson. Do any of those titles ever like 
get in your head and be like, well, am I this or am I that? We wear so many hats. We do so many different things like running our own business and trying to be an entrepreneur, trying to be a salesperson, try and be a bookkeeper, stay on top of all, all of the shows and deadlines and dates and, and all a lot of moving parts trying to run a business on top of it, go out you know, and sell it and, and then get it in people's homes. And people ask me, what do you do for a living? A mom and artist. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but we, we have to wear a lot of hats mm-hmm. day in, day out, different things we do outside of the glass studio. I feel like the being in the glass shop is almost such a small element of what we do. Yeah. A lot of post-production stuff after we're done blowing it. But the, the fastest part of the whole process is probably looking at the big picture from the time we go out and try and sell it and produce it, install it. Like the fastest part of, of the whole thing is making it, which happens in the shop because glass is so immediate. But mm-hmm. there's so much post-production work, whether or not we're sandblasting or grinding or mounting the mounts on onto the pieces or meeting with the client and doing all the the back end work and the designing it and or or with the installers that are installing it for us so we really do have to be pretty diversified in in a lot of different things you can be a great glass blower but there's there's so much more to it than that in order to mm-hmm. to make a living and survive doing it and you see a lot of great glass blowers that are incredible glass blowers but they you, you don't see all of them out there really pushing to sell the work mm. you know not everybody has the skill set or it's acquired skill set that i think we've developed over time mm-hmm. but when i first started out in doing the show in just laguna that one show during the summer was all i had throughout the whole entire year so i'd do one show and that would be basically it and then i was working for other people helping them make their work mm-hmm. doing some freelance work and then trying to work one or two days a week for myself and Mm-hmm. slowly work more than one day a week for myself for two days and where comes three. And then, so it, it's definitely a, an evolving process. Mm-hmm. So like you do big installations for people's homes of varying scales that'll translate or correlate into, let's say like a hospital or other types of corporate spaces. Do those people who are doing those kinds of projects, do they find you at the shows out on the road? I would say it's it's probably a blend. It could be from the, one of the shows that we have done in the past where you'll meet a designer at the show and then follow up with them, sending them you know, information and, and a portfolio of work and corporate things maybe that you'd worked on, mm-hmm. try to develop relationships with them. And, and they don't always happen immediately. And a lot of those typically take quite a bit of time to evolve. Yeah. And Someone will find us organically through online or maybe Instagram. Yeah. But I usually, I feel like we meet up one or two designers every handful of shows or every show. I feel like you end up meeting someone in the design industry. Okay. We don't specifically target and go after designers. It's just kind of as people find us through either online or through shows, kind of, I think how we end up creating those connections and relationships. Once you end up having a body of work, that you have in a portfolio of that scale, for example. So really what we have to do is we have to sell them the idea in the space on the street that makes them feel confident that they can step into a ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollar project, whatever it might be, to feel like, okay, right. I can see where this is going and I can envision it, as opposed to just being like, 
well, here's a sketch of what I could do. And then they might look at you like, um, like, can I see examples to, to kind of right. help my brain figure that out? Yeah. <laughs> it helps to paint the picture and have something that they kind of like a foot you can stand on something you've done where they can see that you're, you've installed maybe a body of work that they're interested in in a commercial setting. And they're like, okay, you, you've jumped through the hoops. You've been through it before. I can rely on you when, when you say it's going to be done in four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or when, however long you know your deadline is, that you actually are going to step up to the plate and, and they can re- perform and rely on you. Because if you burn a bridge in the design industry, it's usually it's not something you'd want to ever do. Yeah, I'm always like, if I say it's going to be done at this time, like yeah. I can guarantee you it's unless that's or something catastrophic. I can guarantee you we're, we're going to follow through for you. Do you work with contracts with people? Depends. Typically, we'll sign a contract if it's a commercial location or stating how many pieces and kind of how much ground it's going to cover. And and then sometimes they're just like, we'll give them a, a rendering or a, a design and we'll, we'll get a deposit and then we'll end up just completing the project, shipping it out, and they'll have someone install it. But At first, one of our first projects, we've kind of entered into like on faith. And then at some point, it it started to feel like risky. So that was a wake-up call for me. And so I have a cousin who who's a, an accomplished lawyer, and I talked to him about my concerns. And so he hit all the target points that I've used as kind of, um, I don't know, like a template for when I work with big dollar right. items. I mean, there might be a threshold before I would it would kick in. But ultimately, you know, what if you're working for a project and let's say you're already, you know, several thousands of dollars into the materials and they've paid you. What if they want that money back? Or what if like the zoning falls through and they can't use the space and then like, well, now I want my money back. But as artists, we don't have that kind of cushion. Right. Or liability issues too. Have you ever had to deal with anything going backwards like that? Or have you been pretty lucky in that regard? Been really lucky, but it's good to know that we- We made sure our, our business was covered. Right. How about you? Have you ever had that situation? No, fortunately, knock on wood. You know, yeah. I've been been really lucky. But yeah, I mean, you go to make something custom in a specific color. You're designing it for the client and colors they want. And then if you had to eat it, then what do you do with it? It's not like everybody's going to love purple or everybody's going to love mm-hmm. whatever color they maybe ordered it in. Or I think it's it's important on a larger project like that to know you are protected and you don't have, and from a liability standpoint, mm-hmm. it's a good thing to think about. Or figure out a way that, you know, resolution can happen in that write-up, you know? So it's like, well, we can adjust something, maybe we can change right. some colors, but it's not like we're just going to have somebody walk away from the entire commitment based on that purple. Suddenly that purple doesn't right. work or whatever. It's like, no, stay invested in this. We could make <laughs> it work for you. Let's just, let's just work with it. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Uh, Not everything always goes perfectly, that's for sure. Well, I talked to you this summer about the fact that your dad and you have two boys, and I know they're at that age now where they're like into stuff and they're into activities and everything. And you're juggling the professional side and the family side. And you actually said, you know what, they're not going to be this age forever. And you find yourself in a position where you can be flexible with where you go for shows so that you can be a dad, an invested dad, and also an artist. Yeah. So um, 
my wife and I have two boys. We have a, a 10 year old and then we have a 15 year old. So we have nice. the two are extremely awesome. I feel so lucky. Yeah. Um, it does. It happens fast being a parent and watching them grow up and is throughout as they've been growing up doing art shows in order to support the family and support what we do. Um, you always want to kind of try and find a balance and all that. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's, there's never a perfect recipe or answer for that. But this past summer and the summer before, I really kind of tried to scale back the amount of shows that I did during July and August and, and the end of June so we can spend more time with them, do a couple shows that seem to be the best shows for us, but but also in locations where we can take them with us. Oh, we'll do a show yeah. in Colorado where we can we can take them to do some fishing. We did some whitewater rafting when we were in Colorado. Cool. So I think you're trying to find a balance and that is a, an important thing for me. So we can take advantage of, of any free time they have. Yeah. My wife's from Czech Republic. I, oh, cool. I met her when I was living and working there Nice. over 20 years ago. So we'll go back to Europe every couple summers and spend time visiting friends and family, all her family's there. So visit some family in Czech. Yeah, I feel like that time went so fast for me. Both of my kids got through their teenage years. It felt like a whirlwind. And so when you told me that, I'm like, I'm really glad to hear that because you're on top of it before. Yeah. I'm not saying I missed I missed out, but I will say that this business is a hustle getting from show to show yeah. and making enough money and stuff that, you know, it's good that you can put that intention and make it all work out because- being a parent is one of the other big things that we want from this life, not just being artists. There's always another show I could do, or there's always another couple shows I could do and kind of try and like find some kind of balance. There's always more money to be made, but you'll never get that time back with your kids. So it, it, it's not easy. You know, it's the, like you say, we, we're, we're trying to make a living mm-hmm. and support them and, and find a balance. But you know, the oldest one's 15. I'm like, man, next year he's going to be driving. And the next thing you know, he's 18 and, right. and he's off to college. So it's, it's quick. Yeah. So do they show any interest in the artistic side or glass blowing or anything? With the oldest one, no, the youngest one, maybe, but the glass is, is a pretty unique material that we're working with. It's hot. We, during COVID, we had them in the shop oh. a handful of times and tried to get them in to make a cup or make a piece and, and yeah. pick out your colors and had, had them in, in the shop. But they're just like, dad, it's hot. That's, I know. that's I what did you do is, you know, working with the glass is hot. So there's been with the youngest one on maybe so a little bit of interest then. I think the oldest one really respects and appreciates what we do and i think because he gets older it will even maybe resonate more with him that we we make our living with our hands and it's pretty uh pretty unique way to to support a family and uh, a renaissance way of you know of of making this living and Uh and what we're doing in order to survive but they're they're around and they're exposed to it which i think is important so our studio is a building just detached from our house. It's a small garage on our property. And so like home life and studio life was oh, nice. very intertwined. And I remember one summer we had had the kids doing their chores, doing yard work, cutting the lawn. 
And they came and they stood in the doorway of the studio and they gave us the look of like, it's so hot out here. <laughs> come here. Come on. Walk a little closer. Like, no, come closer. I'm standing at the glory hole. I'm like, come a little closer. And they're like, what? What? And they're standing in front of the 2,300 degree oven. And I'm going, you see how hot it is right here? Do you want to change places? And I'll cut the lawn and you can work in here. I'm like, no, we'll go cut the lawn. Done. Yeah, what a deal. <laughs> They're like, torture. That's torture. <laughs> All of a sudden, cutting the lawn's not so bad. That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want to wash the car or do you want to you want to help me blow some glass? What do you want to do? Uh, it's not, we're not a dime a dozen. So I think their friends are like, don't, they don't have parents that are that are standing in front of the furnace or, you know, at the shop working. Nine to five. Yeah, totally. One thing I've always wondered is, you know, we've just, since we got into this, Renee and I, it's just been a hustle and we haven't had the opportunity to do as much networking or being in the scenes like the West Coast scene versus other glass scenes in the United States. It just seems like out on the West Coast, it's like glass everywhere. It's a mecca. There's a decent amount of glass out here. I mean, it's pretty surprising how, you know, obviously Seattle is like a huge hub for glass, but just even in Southern California, you have within, I'd say, you know, uh, an hour north or south, you have, you maybe have seven or eight probably shops that, that are, we're surrounded by. So if there's a job that would be a better fit for another shop, we would send it their way or we don't do lessons at our shop, but sometimes I'll get phone calls for lessons and then there's a shop that does lessons. So we'll refer the the lessons to the other shop and um, we kind of all try and, you know, work together or someone needs something. We all know each other. So you can pick up the phone and say, Hey, I, I need a, I need a favor. I need to come in and, so maybe someone's sandblaster's not working. They need my sandblaster to, right. to do something. We'll have them come in the shop or they need a bag of batch for something or somehow they ran out of glass. But I think everybody's really helpful in, in that regard just to be able to, if you need something, everybody's kind of a phone call away. Yeah, we're a real unique group in that. I mean, it's not like the equipment that we have that people just make and fix and sell equipment, few and far between, maybe, you know, one or two in the whole country. But it's like you have issues. We really do need to rely on networking with people in our area who are other glass blowers. We might need a hand with changing out a pot or rewiring stuff in the furnace or rebuilding a furnace, any of that kind of stuff that I don't know that other mediums have that same kind of need to have that networking with somebody else in their medium just in order to do and maintain their their work and their projects and their studio yeah there's a lot of a lot of a lot to keeping the shop up and going and and then with our furnace with any furnace it's just melting the glass it's so corrosive every year we'll change have to change either change the pot out or we'll fix the burner block or the burner Mm -hmm. or something gets replaced and None of it lasts forever. The furnace is sitting at 2,000 degrees and you're melting glass in it and it just breaks down over the period of time. And then, so there's always something that needs to be repaired at some point. The repairs come a lot sooner than when we want them to. <laughs> I know. That's, I guess that's one constant thing. Yeah. Like we turned off our furnace for me to have the surgery because it was going to be a four month downtime for recovery, which we've never had that. I mean, last year we did it for the we had that downtime for the right foot and now this year for the left foot. But before that, we were like 24-7 furnace studio running all year round. Anyway, we flip off the furnace and 
Sure enough, one of our elements broke, so we're going to have to drop in a new Molly element and possibly change out our pot. I was hoping just to come right back to it, hoping we weren't going to have to fix anything. So right, right. It's the beast of what we do. It is. So you guys have an electric furnace? We do. We have one of the Stadelman furnaces from years ago, and we've just okay. we rebuilt it last year okay. for the first time. Uh, we had to replace all the castings, and the glass leaked out of a couple of pots over the years. And so we had like a moat of glass that had settled around the lower chamber, which was why we needed to replace everything because we just lost so much insulating properties from having the glass eat through that. Okay. And that was a whole new experience for us building it from scratch. But when you do it, it's like such a high that you are so capable to fix something, you know, it really pushes us to the limit. That's so cool. Well, that's, yeah, it's, it's just crazy. It doesn't, nothing lasts that long in the, with the furnace and the glory hole. There's always three casting doors or something's going to, over time, it's just breaking down with the amount of heat and contraction and expansion and all the abuse we put it through, you know, just the normal wear and tear. Yeah. Is it, it's got to be nice for four months though, even, I mean, minus the, your, your foot, but to be down for a bit, is it kind of, a little bit it's been allowing you to get some other stuff done. And- well, I've we've been trying to keep ourselves creatively interested. We watched some YouTube videos, like we watched a few talks from Dante Marioni last week, which he's our he's probably one of our favorite contemporary glass artists of the studio glass movement. It's almost like when we're blowing glass, we're in the trenches. And right. yes, the work itself does spur new ideas and stuff. But then having this passive period where we're not immersed in it, other stuff is coming up. So it's, it's kind of interesting. That's great. I'd say more of my ideas and more of this, this, some of the things that evolved in our body of work has been outside of the studio where you, okay. we've, we've had a, a break or we had a time to kind of like exhale and maybe my eyes get open to, to a new idea or um, a concept comes to me from being outside of the shop and being whether or not just in a different state of mind. Yeah. Because we are constantly when the furnace is up, you're kind of grinding. It's either the show, you're in the shop, you're yeah. trying to wear all those hats, but it's, it's, there's something kind of liberating about probably having it shut off just for a minute. It's quiet. It's weird to be in the, in it is. the shop without that sound of the furnace. Right. It almost feels lifeless when there's no sound and no smells. There's so many elements of what we experience with being in the studio that is of other senses, you know, the smells and the heat and the whatever and the, and the sounds that we hear, that that feels like yeah. the energy of the studio, which is as addictive as working with the glass itself. And you got the glow, you got the sound of the furnace, you have, you know, the fans that are on, mm-hmm. cherry woods burning. I mean, there's, there's newspaper burning. But even when it's just when it's just idling, it's just you walk in, it's warm, and you kind of hear that that sound of, of the furnace roaring. It's it's weird when it gets shut off for a minute. And you're like, oh, man, it's so quiet. You're missing <laughs> it something. feels like it's dead in here. <laughs> totally. Wow. <laughs> well, before you know it, it'll be back back on fire. <laughs> back on the grind. Yeah. Well, Christopher, this has been good. I really appreciate uh, this conversation and. I, don't know, I think we've talked about some things that maybe other artists out on the road who aren't glass blowers. You know, it's about the process of that goes behind it that is just a little bit different. And I mean, the things we maybe take for granted, but other people don't really know when they think about glass blowers. Yeah. Well, thank you, Douglas, for having me on. It's been it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. And um, 
look forward to seeing you. What's the next show we're going to see each other at? I'll, I'll be out on the road in April, so you'll see me then. I'll be limping. I'll probably still yes. be in a boot or in one of those one of those knee carts. But you're amazing. I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> you're amazing. Yeah. All right, man. Take care. All right. Thanks. Great talk with Christopher Jeffries, Douglas. Thank you for doing that one. And and cool insight, too, with talking about Chihuly. And, and that is everyone's kind of go-to when they talk sure. about glass, if they don't know the movement and they don't know that much about it. Mm-hmm. I, I found that fascinating. I mean, I'm a Chihuly fan. I like the installations. He is somebody who has, I mean, done so much. He's basically given us a career because people want to collect contemporary glass art. But the thing that I found the most interesting is – just about anybody else I can think of on the street, Christopher Jeffries, not Chihuly, by the way, he is selling a concept. He's not wrapping stuff up from his booth and sending work with them. He is selling installations that, you know, could range from ten to fifty thousand or up. Mm. Those are price points that I don't think a lot of us would feel comfortable on the street just saying, This is what I do, you know? It's a risk which pays off for him. Yeah. Big, big numbers. Sometimes they're round. Uh, The the round ones are hard to take, he says. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that is that's the thing. Once you're in that market, I think you you start to kind of figure out where you can Mm -hmm. make that happen. True. So not pull a zero. And if you do, then, you know, uh, if you pull a 50 next week, then the zero is worth it. Zero is so worth it. Planting the seeds. Yeah. Yeah, right. planting the, the the seeds and getting in people's heads, and maybe they'll come back and, and get it next time. So, And when that thing happens in three months, six months, a year, well, you know, then that show yeah. that you did all those many, many months ago, it's like, okay, that was worth it. Ooh, yeah. ooh, ooh, I got one. Yeah. I got one for okay. you. Even if you laid an egg, mm-hmm. sometimes the egg hatches. Hatches. It hatches, people. Huh? Huh? Okay. Who do you love? I love it. Yeah, awesome. there's your metaphor for the day. <laughs> you might have laid an egg, but maybe it'll hatch. It'll hatch. All right, folks. Uh, no more insight and bullshit. I got to go paint. <laughs> Douglas has to go- uh, Elevate. I don't know. What do you- <laughs> Elevate? Go elevate and fester. All right, guys. All right, friends. Uh, we'll see you on the road. Perfect. This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Independent Artists. The website is naiaartists.org. Also sponsored by Zapplication. That's zapplication.org. And while you're at it, find us on social media and engage in these conversations. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to be notified when we release new episodes. Oh, and if you like the show, we'd love it if you would give us your five-star rating and offer up your most creative review on your podcast streaming service. See you next time.